Hi, and welcome to Conversations to Connect. I'm Fenella Hawksley, and on this podcast, we will be hosting conversations to share insights, knowledge, and research to inspire change and to help people feel more connected. On today's episode, I'm joined by Nova Reed. Nova Reed is a thought leader, TED speaker, author and producer, fascinated by human behaviour. Often described as a force to be reckoned with, Nova uses her professional background in mental well-being to encourage meaningful change from the inside out. Through her impactful advocacy and powerful public speaking, writing and storytelling, she has become renowned as an agent of change, selected as one of Black Magic Network's top 100 black British women and receiving a precious award for social impact. She is a regular contributor to BBC News and Sky News and has written for publications including The Guardian, Vogue, Elle and Stylist. In 2019, Nova was headhunted by TEDx Frankfurt to deliver a talk on racial microaggressions and has also shared the stage with acclaimed actor David Harewood at the National Theatre to discuss the impact of racism on mental health. Nova runs a life-changing online academy entitled Becoming Anti-Racist with Nova Reed and has recently published her first book, The Good Ally, a guided anti-racism journey from bystander to change maker. Hi Nova, welcome to Conversations to Connect. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So could you describe your own experience of loneliness? Yeah, it's Someone recently asked me how often I experience loneliness and um, it's almost every day. And so I'm in this, I do this strange dance with loneliness where you've got, I'm one of the, I'm one of many people to have people in my life who I love um, and who love me. And there's this strange dance I do as somebody as a public figure I say with inverted commas whatever that means but somebody to have you know hundreds sixties of thousands and hundreds of thousands of 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 followers of of you and your work and to regularly experience this um and enduring feelings of loneliness um and what I found from speaking more about it and you know one of the reasons that I haven't and, and many others don't speak about it is because I think you're expected to particularly if you're in a, a, a similar position to me like what why would you be lonely like it doesn't make any it doesn't make any sense and so you don't speak about it and then when I found that I started to speak about it more I hear so many other people experience it as well so you're in this weird vacuum of feeling lonely um, but you're not alone in your loneliness, and so that's something I've I'm finding comfort in at the moment. But yeah, I I experience loneliness on a regular basis, and that's the thing. I don't think we talk we talk that much about it. So then you that can make you feel even more alone, mm. and also like it's a subjective feeling. It doesn't really matter if you're around people. It's how you feel inside. I mean, it's it's different for everyone, isn't it? I think it's different for everyone, and you know it's you know some of the things that contribute to loneliness are are beyond your immediate circumstances and and have a lot to do with the environment that you're in and whether or not you belong or whether you feel like you belong and so there's so many factors that feed into it and also just where your life your circumstances your life circumstances take you and whether that is you know the site the same timing as the people in your life who matter, you know, all your friendship circles, life events, all of these things contribute. So true. And I think that kind of leads us on to the environment and that can really impact how how you feel in your loneliness. So studies have, have shown that people from an ethnic minority in terms of being in the minority and where they're living are more likely to experience loneliness and chronic loneliness. And I know that there's often talks about minority stress. That's this term that refers to a group that can experience prejudice and discrimination. And that's proven to be a factor in so many adverse mental and physical health mm. problems. And they've shown that that also means that they can people can suffer from chronic loneliness more. 
I wanted to ask, because I know you have experience working in mental health, what can you see as the impact of racism on on health? Racism impacts every single system in your body, nervous system, gynecology, blood pressure, everything, mental health, reproductive system, trauma. Let me be specific. Um, So racism, experiencing racism is trauma. There is lots of research and data and studies that have shown us that experiencing racism and being exposed to racial stress on a regular basis can show up in black bodies in particular, as trauma. And so trauma impacts every single system in your body, from your digestive system, reproductive. And so, you know, it's no surprise that we see disproportionate outcomes with with healthcare when it comes to people who are black being hyper-exposed to this ongoing racial stress. And, you know, it's showing up as weathering in the body. There are studies that show experiencing regular racial stress can show up in the brain pattern in the same way as war veterans who served in war. Impacting reproductive system, I I don't have the stats in front of me, but there was one that came out, I I believe, earlier this year, 23, that I think 60% around, please double check this, um, around 60% of black women have uterine fibroids, so tumours in their womb. There are studies that show trauma can be passed down from generation to generation, from womb to womb. Why is there barely any research on this? It's not an anomaly. This isn't something to do with something inherently wrong with black women. This is everything to do with the environment and the way that your bodies adapt to cope with trauma. There are studies that showed people who were either involved in 9-11 or were witness to what happened in 9-11 and who were pregnant, those babies were born with higher cortisol levels. So it, it impacts every single system in the body. And so, of course, I heard, I think, um, the US general surgeon was speaking on, a, on a, a recent piece of research that came out in May in America about this epidemic of loneliness. And in that, it also showed, obviously, it's from an American lens, but, you know, black Americans and, and I think with black Americans that were named specifically, they are disproportionately impacted by loneliness. Yeah. What you speak about trauma, I did, I read a study about black males, males in America had experienced symptoms of PTSD, which showed up in health impacts later on in life. You look at things like diabetes. I mean, yes, of course, there are other factors involved in diabetes that can be around diet as well, of course. But, But, you know, some types of diabetes are inherited. You know, it's not some happy coincidence that so many of these disproportionate health outcomes are disproportionately impacting people who are continuously exposed to racism. And that's the thing, you know, racism hasn't gone anywhere. It's not post-traumatic stress. Post suggests that it's stopped. It hasn't. So you're constantly being, it's continuously, it's persistent. You're constantly being exposed to this. So of course your body is going to respond and try to adapt and cope with the environment that you're in. I had Eddie Elmer, who's a PhD researcher, and he was talking about the effect in the LGBTQ community because they experience minority stress. And so they experience larger marginalization due to a variety of factors. And one of them is like the perceived hostility of other people. So that obviously can make you feel more lonely if you if you have been mm-hmm. subject to racial abuse. There is an element of I am gonna there's an element of hypervigilance for some, and there's an element of I need to prepare myself that this shit might show up at any minute. And so, and some of this is conscious and some of it isn't. Your body, you go into an environment where you are a minority and you've and you've experienced attack or social persecution from a group of people who are represented in, you know, in that dominant group, then your body remembers that this isn't safe. And so it may do things or you may you may be looking for your exits, your heartbeat might be, you know, going quicker than normal. Other things, you might be sweating. Like sometimes this isn't always conscious, but absolutely our bodies hold trauma and it will respond. Our bodies are trying to keep us safe and it will do what it needs to. A lot of this is happening automatically and subconsciously. And many of it is happening because we continue to be under attack. And even if it's not a direct overt attack, I know you did your TED talk on microaggressions and that was 
so interesting to watch because yeah I mean I wonder if you could speak a bit about that that the the effect that small inadverted commas daily microaggressions can have that are not intentional to offend but that can cause this impact of like a a build-up of stress and trauma yeah so again, you know, I, I talk about microaggressions because they're described as the kind of everyday, I'm, I'm talking in my TED talk specifically about racial microaggressions, but you can experience right microaggressions if you have a disability, so, you know, whenever you are seen or treated as an other by a dominant group, you can be on the receiving end of these, these regular acts of discrimination, I guess. And that could be anything from me going into a room and somebody or or me I was on the phone recently to a call center and the person asked me what my ethnicity was and rather than wait for my response they said oh white I said no I'm not white so they were making an assumption about my identity based on how I sound and based on whatever biases they have about who speaks English who speaks English like this and it could be anything from that it could be the you know, regular being questioned where I'm from when I've answered that I'm British, but because my skin is black, people are like, no, 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 where you, you know, where are you really from? Britain, (laughs) Hertfordshire. Um, And it could be right down to, you know, walking around with my Afro hair and people feeling the need to touch it. So there are so many different types of, or, or going shopping and noticing that a shopkeeper is conversing with a customer in front of you who is racialized as white and it's jovial. It's not, they don't know each other, but it's polite, it's friendly. And you go there and and attempt to engage in a similar dialogue and there's no eye contact. There's no conversation. Instead of giving you the money in your hand, they slam it down on the counter for you to pick up yourself. So these are the kinds of things. These are the kinds of everyday experiences of, of racial microaggressions that, that I experience, and I'm even looking at your face now, Fenella, and you're shocked. And I'm like, I'm forty, I'm forty plus years. I've had this for decades, and you're shocked. So it's it's that discrepancy between how I live my life on a day to day to day basis and how you live your life, and the big gaping hole in between. And so, of course, those things will will contribute to feelings of loneliness. And I and I speak about microaggressions in this way because. Whilst I don't like to focus on intention, because we can all do things that cause harm unintentionally, like having a, you know, bumping into someone's car. We Most of us don't mean to drive into other people's cars, but we do. And the intentions kind of doesn't matter. You've still damaged the car. You need to repair the car. So, or take responsibility to repair the car through your insurers or whatever it is. And so I use that as an example that our intentions don't really matter when harm is caused and we need to take responsibility for the harm that we cause whether it's intentional or not and that these kinds of everyday slights happen so often they do contribute to trauma and um, we have multiple opportunities to do better um, when they are highlighted to us and so I speak about them because people like to minimize racism by saying oh well it's just a few bad apples or you know it was a long time ago, you know, that, you know, it's only those few over there, but no, it's not many. We have been socialized to be racist, just need to pick up a history book. And as a result of that socialization, you know, we've learned racism. Racism was normal at one point. It was legalized. It was le- It was, it was only until civil rights action in the seventies that employers couldn't discriminate against someone based on the skin color. I was born a few years after that. Like you don't, you don't just suddenly forget racist programming because some laws have changed. It's embedded in how we treat one another. And so focusing on microaggressions was a really important way for, to help me to help people understand that whether you intend to or not, it can have impact. And here's some things you can do about it. Did you say it was like thousand paper cuts? Um, I didn't. I can't recall who this is attributed to, but somebody said, I want to say Maya Angelou, but I can't remember, like like death by a thousand paper cuts. So you consider getting one paper cut, it stings, it's, it's, it's a little bit painful in a moment, and then you can kind of get on with your day. But if you have paper cut after paper cut after paper cut after paper cut, that's painful. 
that could be infected. That could stop you from getting on with your day-to-day activities. So yeah, it's the buildup of microaggressions and the regular exposure to them that causes more harm or can cause more harm than one singular overt act of hate. And what about the impact of microaggressions on health? So it's similar to what I said before, the studies that show show up in the brain as PTSD in the same way that war veterans can, blood pressure, reproductive systems, cardiovascular, it it impacts every single system in the body. And I think, especially in the UK, this is something that, I mean, it's a topic that's so relevant given the amount of studies that have come out about various different institutions that we deem safe or that we would deem where we need to go to for safety, aka Mm. the NHS or the Met Police or even the Fire Brigade. These are institutions that are meant to help us into safety, but recent reports have shown that they Mm -hmm. are unsafe and that they are racist. So when I say unsafe, I mean when they are an unsafe environment. No, I think I don't think you need to caveat that. They are unsafe. So you would say, you know, we would go to the police for safety. I would never go to the police for safety. I'm a black woman. Like, like we, there is so much um, dehumanization and mistreatment that has been enduring for decades and decades and decades between the black community and, and the police here in Britain. And so I remember when the horrific murder of, of Sarah Everard happened, there was all this nonsense that the government was recommending about flagging down a bus, you know, you know, in case somebody doesn't feel safe with a police officer flagging down a bus. And I'm like, I, I just like, we've got an issue with the institution. Like, and you're, you're recommending that we flag down a bus. Like it's no, it's rotten to the core. We need to look at what's going on within this institution and what has been going on in that institution for decades and being ignored because the majority of people who were being harmed by the police had black skin and not white and therefore not much was done about it so yeah it's you know and and sometimes it is because there are people in these institutions that are overtly racist and absolutely shouldn't be working there and other times it's because you've got people who have learned racist behaviors and racist attitudes and don't necessarily know that they're racist behaviors or attitudes but that are impacting outcomes I'll give you a couple of examples um so in the I recently took part in a report looking at um in the in in healthcare and we were looking we were investigating why black women at the time were four to five times more likely to die in childbirth and we were doing that through, you know, diving through research, interviewing lots of people who work, who, clinicians who work in the sector, as well as patients who've accessed the, the, the service and so forth. And it was a year long human rights inquiry with human rights lawyers and it, very robust. And, um, you know, clearly, you know, there was institutional racism, systemic racism, left, right and center. And one of those is that there was, um, there was a, a myth and a belief that black people have thicker skin and can therefore withstand more pain. So how does that translate on a maternity ward? A black woman asking for pain medication and not receiving it or being the last on the ward to receive it, um, being ignored, that then turning into a, a, an infection that could have been controlled, turning into sepsis. Um, so constantly not being ignored. And then when you trace that back, there was a study done. Um, I can't remember what the acronym means, but a study by PNAS in 2016, where over 50, just over 50 percent of white medical doctors still believe that black people can withstand more pain. That was in 2016. This is off the back of that that gynecology was founded in the 1800s by somebody called J. Marion Sims. J. Marion Sims invented the vaginal, I can't even remember what you call it now, specular. <laughs> I can't remember what you call it. But the, the, the thing that, you know, all of us who, you know, when we have a smear test, all of those things that do vaginal examinations, that was invented by somebody called J. Marion Sims. J. Marion Sims used to do experiments on black enslaved women without consent, barbaric and without anesthesia. And that was from the 1800s. And so from the 1800s to 
To this present day, people still believe that black women can withstand more pain as a result of those barbaric experiments that J. Marion Sims used to do. And he used to justify those barbaric experiments by saying that the enslaved women had thicker skin and could withstand pain. And so that's what I mean. You know, if you've got an institution, gynecology, that was founded in medical racism, like you're going to learn those racist behaviours and attitudes. You might not, some people listening to this may never have heard about that person before, but that's where it's rooted. And so for me, in, in the work that I do, it's really important that we understand our history so we can stop making these mistakes and stop getting into a state of hearing racism and thinking that we're talking about somebody in the KKK rather than actually what racist behaviours and attitudes have I learned and what do I need to unlearn so I can stop causing harm? And I think that's from the results of the various different reports that have come out recently about the Met Police and the Fire Brigade, the resounding kind of result was that they are institutionally racist. And I, I wanted to ask specifically, what impact does that have on the communities that experience this racism in terms of trust one we need to trust the institutions that are meant to protect us and two promoting feelings of belonging in society well I think it's you know it's obvious it creates huge feelings of mistrust total breakdown in those communities you know not not trusting that you're going to be believed or heard and therefore maybe not reaching out for help at a time when you really really need the help of 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 an institution like that which could have a detrimental impact on on one's safety in terms of healthcare i've written about some of this in the good ally but some people wouldn't reach out for help or support from medical services through fear of not being believed or being discriminated against and not being treated with dignity. And this goes across the board, not just with black folk, but people who who may also be uh, in queer communities or disabled, not reaching out for help when you need medical attention because you you believe and have probably experienced dehumanizing treatment previously. And so therefore, ending, potentially ending up very well or not getting the treatment that you deserve a need. Um, so it has a detrimental inc- impact on outcomes and, you know, can can lead to huge isolation, not just of individuals, but entire communities. And I think it goes back to, to the loneliness point, because if you don't feel like you belong in a society or if you don't feel like you can trust the, the institutions that kind of hold up a society, then that can make you feel very alone. It's very isolating. It's very what I call othering. It's very othering. And, you know, there'll be plenty of people who, you know, you kind of suck it up and you 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 contact them because they're who you need to contact. Or, you know, for others, it might be, you know, finding a really good doctor or, or finding a named contact at a local police station where you're, you, you know, you're able to have started to develop trust. Or it might, you know, some of that is happening because these institutions recognise they need to do work to build repair um, and trust within communities and so actively do outreach work but many don't Um, and then it's left on the onus is left on you which is also very isolating. I was at the Radiate Festival in Burgess Park this weekend and they had a have a cuppa with a copper and football games with the police so that's I guess an example of kind of community trying to build community. I, I wanted to ask you as well so when did you first get the idea to write The Good Ally? Yeah, I often talk about this with some of my, my peers who are activists and, and, and do do so, some kind of social justice work. And we all end up doing social justice work because we or people that we care about close to our, us have experienced some kind of social persecution. Um, and so, you know, you don't, I don't, choo- <laughs> don't choose to spend my days dealing with racism because sometimes it's harmful to me. I'm not immune just because I understand human behavior and I understand where so much of this is coming from. It doesn't mean that I'm not immune to being harmed by it. So um, I often, yeah, I'm often asked this question and, and the truth is I was delivering a workshop to a creative agency about race inclusion and somebody in the room was listening to me talk happened to be a literary agent and they said you know have you ever thought about turning your your workshop into a book um and I said no I can't imagine 
I can't think of anything more dull personally. So no. And she said, well, you know, I think it's amazing. What you do is great. And just think about it. And so I did. And I started to write in a way where it felt like me. And, you know, there was some playfulness in there. There was some, you know, real truths. There was, you know, I wanted to make the subject human because I think, you know, the essence of the essence of being on the receiving end of, of racism and also loneliness, I think is quite dehumanizing. We were made to feel like the issue is with us when actually there are many issues that we're experiencing that are, are very normal human experiences. And so to me, it's very important to humanize the subject matter for me being on the receiving end of racism and also people who want to understand how to better support and also unlearn any racist behaviors or racist attitudes that they have learned and so I just added me to it and I made it it's narrative non-fiction so it's a little bit autobiographical um, I share a lot more of me than I intended but it felt an integrity to do that it humanized it rather than just have me dictate and I sent it back to the I sent it back to her the literary agent and she said that said this is amazing that was back in 2018 and she said I think we can get you a deal and I said okay then and so we did and for those people who haven't read the good ally I recommend it is it's a really important read and I think it explains a lot of what we're talking about as well in terms of impact of racism on health but also how ingrained racism is in society and and until we acknowledge that it's hard to move forward Mm. it's impossible to move forward it's you, you just can't you can't like human beings are designed to evolve we'll just keep repeating these cycles and patterns of behavior in slightly different formats until we address it on the last podcast episode I had two friends come on they founded a business 112 so G is Asian and Hannah is a black woman Hannah spoke about like these diversity and inclusion workshops that aren't working I hate the term diversity and inclusion. And I say that as somebody who used to navigate that industry. I say that as someone who's been there and done it. But I'm like, well, if we can't even have a conversation about what we're diversifying from, like, what are we, okay, diversity, what are we diversifying from? We're diversifying from whiteness. We're diversifying from white people. We're diversifying from able-bodied people. We're diversifying from heterosexual people. So if we can't even name what it is that we're diversifying from, how are we going to address it? And I remember there were moments where they'd have all these initiatives. Uh, I, I can't even think like, let's just say South Asian Heritage Month or, or similar where you, you know, well-meaning people in an organization would encourage encourage everyone to try different foods from the cultural region or whatever it is and have this delicious cuisine in the canteen or to bring in sweets and and I write about this in the book um somebody who was South Asian brought in their uh, one of their favorite favorite sweets from their culture and the week went by and those sweets remained untouched and stale and thrown in the bin so these are all of the ways that you can feel isolated and socially excluded in the workplace and this was as a result of a well-meaning person instigating some cultural theme around a you know a a, a heritage month oh yeah let's get some let's get some ethnic food in for for a week or whatever it is and and nobody eats the food like it's very othering it's very dehumanizing instead of the word diversity and inclusion what would you rather well, what is it that you're addressing? If you're addressing homophobia in the workplace, let's talk about homophobia. If you're addressing racism in the workplace, let's talk about racism or white supremacy. If we're addressing, if the issue is trans awareness month, then let's talk about transphobia. Like we have to name what it is that we are trying to address. If we can't name it, we can't even address it. Can you imagine going to the doctors and just talking around the subject? You can't address what you can't name. And like, yes, it's uncomfortable. But, you know, we have to do this work if we want to evolve as human beings and take better care of one another. And also the funny thing is it's not diverse. Like, it's just representative of the whole. Like, I think offices and so many spaces are not representative of the whole country. Like, it's a very minute segment. And I don't think, I think what a lot of companies don't realize is like, that isn't actually, that isn't good for a business to have one viewpoint, one type no. of person, one. It's like, we need to be inclusive because. Well, it's how we thrive. It's like, we, we are, 
you know, we forget because we're in our little bubble here in the UK. And right. depending on what area in the UK, that bubble becomes even, even, even smaller. But if you look at, if you look at us on a global level, we are multifaceted and that is how we have always been like we, 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 we're multifaceted. And so I don't like to have to argue the business case for these organizations to give a damn about centering the well-being of all of their staff and, and being more inclusive. But there is a business case. Again, there's studies left, right and centre. I think McKinsey has probably done the re- most robust studies that, you know, a diverse, I say in inverted commas because I hate the word, workforce, you're going to generate more income. You're going to bring more revenue into your business. You're going to innovate more. You're going to be more effective in how you create. So there, there's a business case as well. But, you know, you shouldn't, I, I believe you shouldn't need a business case to, to just treat each other as better human beings. Like, why are we not doing that already? Healthy, happy human beings have a direct impact into every single institution or environment we have contact with. True. I feel like, unfortunately, the focus in so many places is profit and business over well-being I I tend to talk by someone and she was like I realized that shouting at people about how they were just sitting eating caviar and not caring about the world's problems didn't help so I needed to translate it into into their world into their language yeah it will boost your business I mean I get it and I think it's a great shame I think we've become really really disconnected from our humanity and actually that that is a dangerous place to be because being disconnected from our humanity and 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 losing the ability to empathize with people who are different to us is the ingredients for every single human rights crisis that's happened historically from you know the transatlantic slave trade to the holocaust to these horrible horrible human genocides that we see the key ingredient there is to dehumanize someone, make someone less human and lose empathy for them. So I think it's dangerous. No, it's, it's true. And collectively as a society, there's been studies and I'm talking about the UK, but I know that this is a problem in other develop, developed countries that we are becoming more and more disconnected. Yeah. We are becoming more and more lonely and we are deprioritizing the things that make us human. Yes. Like relationships, bonding, empathizing, meeting, having conversations with strangers, being in nature, you know, even being connected to food we eat, all these things. And we prioritize kind of convenience over perhaps something that might take longer, but that will actually connect us more with other people and with the world that we're in. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much, you know, we're, we're, we're designed to be in connection with one another. Like it's a, it's a fundamental core part of our, our ability to survive as human beings is being in connection with one another. Like we, we need it, we crave it. But unfortunately, I think what, what often happens is we find ways to connect in either a superficial way. So cue social media. And I'm not saying that there aren't instigators for meaningful connection, but they are superficial ways to connect or unhealthy ways to connect where we, we gather online to collectively hate about someone or a group of people. But what's driving that is that ability to connect. And it's the same with people who are in right wing groups. They're driven because they want to connect. It's the same thing. Yeah. Did you see the Louis Theroux documentary about neo-Nazism? I think I did, but it would have been quite some time ago. You see the fun viewing I, I spend my time on. Yeah, I know. I mean, to be honest, now I'm just like, mm, I'm just going to watch like Queer Eye because it really makes me happy. <laughs> oh, you definitely need balance. Like to me, like I'm, I'm really fascinated. I'm really fascinated by human humans and human behavior. And obviously I include myself in that. And so I do find myself watching some of these, you know, documentaries because I'm trying to find the connect. There's a connection like they're not they're not monsters. They're other human beings. They are somebody's father. They're somebody's husband. They, they could be somebody that you work with. And I, I'm trying to find a thread like what is what is it that, you know, tips somebody over the edge to to want to, you know, turn their hatred into a, a physical act of harm or to join a cult or I'm interested in all of that. So I do find myself watching these dark documentaries, but, you know, there is balance, you know, I have coming to America playing a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yoga, meditation. 
But no, on one of the women who joined the neo-Nazi group, she, I think she was born into a very Christian family. She was a lesbian. She was like rejected from her family. And I think a lot, in a lot of these cults in a lot of even, yeah, these extreme right-wing groups, mm. it is like, even sometimes in gangs, it's, Same. it's a, a search to, for, to belong yep. somewhere. And we all, I, I had my granddad actually on, on here a couple of weeks ago, and he said, that's a, that's a human basic need to feel like you belong. It is. And that's, that's to me the element of like, we, 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 we've lost, some of us more so than others have lost our, you know, we're becoming disconnected to our humanity. And that's why I say that's a dangerous place to be, because it's when we start othering each other and putting you know, people in camps um, in terms of those people over there or, you know, you Brexiteers or this, that and the other, we, you, you, you'd start to dehumanise. And, and, and those are the key ingredients that allow some of these horrible human rights atrocities to happen. And we do it to each other. But that innate need to connect, we strip back, you know, whatever values somebody in a far right group has, they want to connect. They want to belong. They they. They want to be a part of something. They're 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 feeding in some kind of unmet need, and and a lot of that is about rejection in other settings. And I think it's easier to do that, like to other a certain group of people, if you don't have direct contact with that group of people. Of like you said, if we're all in bubbles, like who is that wonderful man who basically used to go to KKK meetings and he made friends with the leader of the KKK and eventually yeah. he quit I love that story Daryl Davis yeah yeah I speak about him in The Good Ally and also uh my TED talk and and the story around Daryl Davis just just very quickly is that he just similar to me he just became fascinated he wanted to better understand how this over group of of white supremacists got to where they got to in the belief that you know, they believed that he is a black man. He was a jazz music. He is a jazz uh, musician. Is inferior, and they would annihilate him without a second thought. And he was like, "How do you get to that place? Like, I want to understand more." And so he was doing a music tour at the time around America, and um, got his book tour. Uh, sorry, his music tour manager books. The book is in my head. <laughs> Got his music tour manager to set up a meeting with the the Grand Wizard of the KKK and said, you know, we're touring around these areas. I want to meet. And so his music tour manager, I assume, was white. Um, I don't think he explicitly said, but they arranged all the meetings, and the KKK was expecting to meet a white man. And obviously, again, there's an assumption being made. Somebody called Daryl. They make it Daryl Davis. They're making an assumption about racial identity. And the the guy from the KKK was there with his security and, you know, guns are legal in America. And so it could have been a a hot mess, but they sat there in that diner and Daryl wasn't going there to tell him that he was morally wrong for his views. He's like, I just want to understand. And so the more time they spent with one another, the more time... The, the, and I've forgotten the, the guy's name. He's no longer in the KKK. Daryl and him are now friends. The more he realized, well, this is this. None of this is making any sense. This is contradicting everything that I thought because of his proximity and also because of the extraordinary amount of grace and courage that Daryl had. Um, and he ended up leaving the KKK. And so I'm not saying that you know it's our role as Black people to go around doing that. It, it certainly isn't. But there's something in being curious about somebody who is so different to us that will allow us to deeper connect um, rather than fear. That's really important. And I think that's it. It's like once you build relationships, people are humanized and you realize that we all, we're all the same, but. But not. (laughs) But not, we're all the same. We're all human. There was another story, like this was a, one of the ladies in one of those, it's called the, was it the Phelps family? Like one of the most hated families. Yeah, that I write about, uh, I believe I it's Megan that I write about in my book. So I can't remember the cult, that they, it was definitely a cult that they were part of, very, very extreme in their thinking and just anti-human, they're anti-Jewish, anti-Black, anti-war, um, anti um 
anti-everything yeah just anti-human um I, I couldn't think of a group that they weren't anti actually um and was indoctrinated into that cult from a baby from from you know you know children learn very very quickly they're socialized children are socialized a lot earlier than we think they are about who is safe who is not who's right who's who's not um and and kind of where who is ugly who's not who's clever who's not and where they fit in within that and they learn that very very young and you know and the work that she had and again that was because of very of a very compassionate Jewish man who helped her see another way and as a result of that she had to estrange herself from her family like this is what I mean like for some of us who've been who've learned some really extreme ways of thinking you know deepening deepening your connection with who you are as a human being might mean letting go of some people including your family yeah what I remember about that story was that most people had just met it was like they met on Twitter and she would be shouting hatred and most people would meet that with aggression and hate back and it was it was this man who met it with trying to understand and patience and kindness he met he met it with curiosity again and it wasn't he he certainly wasn't colluding with her 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 anti-human behavior shall I call it he wasn't colluding at all but he was contesting what she was saying with fact well have you thought about this how about you go away and read that and then let's come together again like it requires an extraordinary it requires a lot of labor and you're not going to be able to do that for every single person but there is a lot of power in curiosity and also there would have been something within Megan where she's you know had the curiosity to think about something beyond the life and the experience that she was living that actually there must be there's more to this or things aren't making sense so yeah I I worry sometimes that it's easy especially on social media and in the lives we live to live in bubbles of the same thinking well I think I think what so I don't want to blame social media because we we've got autonomy We, we you know we're you know we have autonomy over what we choose to read and what we choose to engage with. Like I will actively go and watch documentaries about neo-Nazis because I'm trying to understand the behavior. Like I don't just watch things that I, that make me feel good. Like um, you see what I mean? We have, we have choice and we can look at things that are different to our own opinions so that we can expand our knowledge or maybe affirm our values or, or whatever it is. We have choice. And so I don't want to completely blame social media because I think, you know, again, we're really good at abdicating responsibility <laughs> um, for our, for our own growth or for our own learning or, or betterment of self. But there are things that social media does. It learns what you like. So, of course, it's going to start throwing up articles or tweets from people who are similar because just like, you know, a Spotify playlist, once you start listening to music and you rewind it and you press the heart button, it's like, oh, nobody likes that kind of music. So I'm going to keep showing that kind of music up in her playlist recommendation. So it learns what you like. So I think it is important for us to go outside our comfort zone intentionally and on a, on a regular basis. And I also think that forces is, is the wrong word, but it definitely encourages us, encourages us to find other ways to connect. Because if you can just connect with somebody over something that you both have in common, it's easier. Yeah, I think I think social media has, like everything, right? There's a good and a bad side. I do think it's amazing for connecting people from all around the world and especially like building a movement. Yeah, I remember having a conversation recently with, with some other key people who were prominent civil rights, you know, uh, responsible for civil rights action here in the UK who were still very much with us and now entering their 70s, 80s. And, you know, one of the questions was like, how did you organize? Because, you know, a click of a button, we can we can find out who's doing similar work in a different location to us or a different country. And just hearing how they organized back then without this vehicle. So we have, you know, it's a social media is a great tool. But I often think it's just not used very well. How did they? Oh, gosh, it was I can't even remember some of it, like writing newspapers, like connect again, connecting with people, right? Who knows someone? I need someone who does this. Who who knows someone who knows this? So regularly meeting up, 
someone organizing and connecting with so the, you know I'm talking specifically around civil rights action within Caribbean communities many of many Caribbean communities came into Britain as a result of like the wind rush so lots of different people from different parts of the Caribbean were coming and people were connected by their shared experience around racism they were experiencing here and so you know you would have these newspapers that were formed by black journalists where they would create information and make sure that information was distributed to families so they knew what was going on and then you had people from different parts of the Caribbean or you know parts of India coming together and meeting and say well I know someone who's there back home so again that connection to one another and that communing helped you don't know who's in your network and I think what you're doing now, you are actively building an, an anti-racism community. I mean, with all the work that you're doing. And I wanted to ask about that. How are you doing that? And what are the positive impacts that you can see from your work in the community building? Thank you. I, you know, I, I wouldn't have, um, I think you're the only person that's framed it like that before. And I really, yeah, it it's, feels really nice to hear it, to have it responded to in that way, because it is community building. It's, it's, it's it's connection it's connection with who we are and you can't you know we can't grow and move forward in any meaningful way if we don't know where we've come from so it's connection to self in an honest way and also connection to others and some of the ways that that is done is i have an online anti-racism course and community and people have stayed in touch and any I mean they meet up on regular basis they live across all over different parts of the UK and they'll meet up twice a year they have they have like a whatsapp group and so they're in each other's lives on a regular basis when they're struggling with things in their own anti-racism journey or something's come up at work how do I best support this who knows like so they're doing that in their own way using technology as a vehicle and then there are people who are using my my book to inform the work that they're doing and so it's being used and this is just what I know about this there's loads of stuff that I don't know I'm sure but criminal justice wales a group of barristers are using the good ally to help them inform embedding anti-racist practice into criminal justice systems the NHS in, I think it's Liverpool, there's a trust in Liverpool that's that's using it to think about and embed anti-racist practice in terms of mental health care support. So they're looking out for, you know, those disproportionate outcomes, some of those disproportionate outcomes we spoke about before, where if you're black and male, you're more likely to be sectioned and over-medicated and not offered any follow-up outpatient care in comparison to with your white and it's a follow-up outpatient care that's more important to helping you stay well that's not being offered and so they're looking at things like that early on there's people who do clinical trials they were doing clinical trials around covid and at the time black asian filipina people were disproportionately dying from covid or becoming severely unwell with covid and they were on a clinical trial group or they were involved in uh, recruiting and they're like there's no there's barely any black or brown people here. Like we need to get people in the clinical trial so that it's actually effectively looking at how this is impacting different groups. And so that's what I mean. Like, don't people are realizing and feeling really empowered about what they can actually do to think about things and apply it and how they can help. And so they're building that community with each other. They're staying in touch with one another. They're supporting each other on tough days when when apathy sets in or you make a mistake and you feel shame and guilt again. And that's what, that's what this is about. None of us are going to be able to tackle loneliness, which is compounded by racism on our own. We have to be in community. That's what I love about your book because it's written in terms of an individual journey, how to, how, like even how to manage your own mental health whilst dealing with this and while learning about it and while reading about it. But then it's linked to, collective and I think that's what everyone needs to do yeah absolutely and you know I try and bring it back to you know us in our most primals probably not quite the right word but us in our most vulnerable or or, you know we need each other like we feel and, and also one of the one of the reasons why people can feel so despairing with tackling social injustice in in whatever guise it shows up is because you can feel like you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders and you've got to figure it all out on your own no 
there's plenty of us here who can do a little bit or when when someone is feeling overburdened or, or or is struggling somebody else can pick up the slack but if you're just trying to do it on your own like you're always going to feel this this you know enveloped by loneliness like we've got to be we've got to be in a community with one another and remember that there are lots of different people in the world who want to see a world where we are free from racism we just need to find our way to each other and believe that it's not just us do our work we have to do our work but also believe that it's not just our work alone because that's again it drives the loneliness it drives that feeling and and that's very it's a very disempowering place to be it's true I think when you feel connected to something greater than yourself you also feel supported yeah for sure like um I'm very I won't call myself religious but I'm very spiritual very spiritual and I'm I'm part of a Buddhist community online and we regularly practice meditation I try and meditate in community don't do it on my own I meditate in community it's more powerful for me it helps it's especially around the loneliness piece as well Um, I try and do that three times a week it's online which helps again love tech for something and that element reminds me I'm not on my own or that I'm connected to something that is greater than me and like being by the sea is another way well it massively resources me I love the water if I could live in the water I would (laughs) (laughs) it's so energizing for me but it also reminds me I'm not alone just because of the vastness if you go to the sea that it's just it's there it's always there it's vast it's all around you and so nature plays a role in reminding me of that as well but it's very important to find intentionally find ways to commune especially if you're doing social justice work because you'll be made to feel like you're going mad or you know if you're if you're being or if you're being seen to be subversive or you've got views that are the opposite of the majority of your family or the opposite of the majority of your your colleagues at work or or your social circles in you know places of worship whatever it is that contributes to those feelings of loneliness and isolation. So it's so important that you intentionally find those ways to remind yourself that, you know, you're part of something greater and that you're not alone and find your people, man, like find your people. Work that you do is obviously incredibly challenging and can be draining. So how do you protect yourself to ensure that you continue doing this great work? Like I say, I'm in these spiritual spaces. I paint, I I've recently found a, a potter, so I play with clay, I sing, like just do things for yourself. I don't do these things so I'm resourced, so I can go out and do more activism. I do these things so I can feel human. And I think that's really important because I've been on the other side of that where I would self-sacrifice for the cause. And I'm like, well, what am I? What, I'm asking people to rehumanize black people, to rehumanize one another and you know, stop the cycle of harm in terms of racism and me treating my body like a machine is the opposite of that. So, you know, I have to be very careful and boundaried around that. And I do things that are just for me, like remind me that I'm a human being beyond being an activist or beyond, you know, these these other things that, that get in the way of me just living my life in peace. <laughs> So true. And like all those things that you've said, they are healing activities, even though we don't say it. Being in nature, it calms our nervous system. Singing, it releases endorphins. Exercise, meditation, they're all things that reground us because I think the modern world can sometimes be very destabilizing and hyperactive and stressful and we need more of those. Yeah, you need things that are grounding that just connect you to your body and the earth so I do a lot of I walk a lot in bare feet I have always done that and I never really thought anything other and then I've started to read more articles around what what that that can do for you but I often walk around you know depending on where I am if it's pure filth that's not going to happen but you know I we my husband and I were somewhere we were away recently and there was a stream nearby and I just took my shoes off and just walked in the stream without any shoes on while everyone else was on the pavement like I just do in the grass things like that I did that I walked barefoot around Brockwell Park and I loved it I was like, you just feel more connected <laughs> to the earth don't you yeah yeah just more connected to yourself as well 
So this question is quite a big one and I'm not expecting you to answer it all, but how can we collectively heal and create a positive and equal society for everyone and for future generations? I feel like I've given tidbits of that throughout this. And I think, you know, you know, if you experience loneliness, there's, there's, you know, there's na- I think naming that you're lonely is really important. Like I'm really lonely and, and naming that with naming that with yourself first or naming it with someone you trust sometimes takes away the overwhelming power of it. Um, and, and then really thinking about, okay, what are some things that I am, I am in control of that can make me feel less lonely? And I apply that with everything. Like sometimes if I'm feeling shame, it's where, okay, I'm, 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 I'm struggling with shame today. Who, what, what do I need? And sometimes that is going for a swim sometime and being underwater and not being with any human beings <laughs> or being with my cat. Or sometimes that might be, you know what, let me contact a friend who I know who can just hold space for me. They're not going to try and make me feel better. They're just going to hear me. So having those you know, under, learning to understand what it is that you need in moments that feel quite despairing can feel really empowering. Like, what do I need right now? Like, yes, this feeling of X, Y, and Z is really overbearing. What do I need? What will be a comfort for me right now? What will feel soothing? What will feel loving? Like, just learning how to name what you need firstly and then get it. Prioritizing things that we think aren't important. Like I said, I sing and I paint and and it can feel really difficult to do those things when you're pressured by money or or you know when you're when you're worrying about when your next paycheck may be coming in or or something like that or when um a relative who you love is going through an illness um and when you're dealing with bereavement and grief like I I that is the time when it's you don't want to do any of that stuff where you feel like it's so unimportant but actually it's when it's most important because it helps keep you well even if it's just five minutes a day of doing drawing something in a little notebook that you carry around with you or writing a poem or or journaling on how you're like something to connect you to who you are and and doing that when it's feels harder to do is more important um And I think just building community, like intentionally building community, intentionally building relationships with people, you know, someone once wrote me a letter and um, they sealed it with wax. (laughs) It was like there was, I feel like there was calligraphy on the envelope and everything. Like it was so, but it was so considered and I opened it and like, it was so lovely because I don't get anything in the post other than bloody bills or junk mail. And I opened it and like, it was just so grounding and moving, just going through that experience of opening it and then discovering who it was from. And, and, and I asked them like, what, like, what led you to do that? I found it was beautiful. And they said, I just want to take the time to be intentional with the connections that I'm making with people to let them know how I feel about them. And that you doing that for someone and then receiving that, that has a positive impact on both of your well-being. So just intentionally building connection with people beyond sending a text message and obviously that will depend on your capacity right but those meaningful ways to connect and sustain connection with one another is just so vital for our well-being and our ability to survive so true we usually we end on two questions which are when did you last feel lonely and what advice would you give to help someone feel more connected but I feel like we've done it you've answered that yeah Yeah. (laughs) because yeah that's beautiful and we all need to be sending beautiful calligraphy letters to our loved ones (laughs) maybe not calligraphy but there's something in the handwritten letter and and as a result of receiving that for myself I recently hand wrote a, a, a couple of letters to some some colleagues of mine in America who've just been you know so supportive of me recently and so, you know, I, I did that because I received that and, and, and now they were really moved by it. Like, it's just, you know, how do we build meaningful connection and community with one another and find a way to sustain it? I'm not saying it needs to be every week or every month, but maybe every month, maybe every two months, maybe every three months, just intentional. Less 
random memes. <laughs> yeah, less, you know, depending on who it is, but just considered yeah. intentional building connection is necessary. And so what are your next steps? I don't know, you know, I'm kind of in the season where I'm going with the flow I'm, and I'm really enjoying that. I'm really enjoying going with the flow. So that's where I'm, I'm going upstream. <laughs> exactly. I'm going upstream. I mean, when some people say they're going with the flow, that will mean they've got a very chilled year ahead of them. But I really don't think that'll be the case for you. <laughs> well, it's, it's not, I wouldn't say it's a very chilled year, but it is definitely slower than it has been in the past two years. And whilst there's some trepidation about, you know, the impact of that financially, because there is one, I'm actually feeling very grounded and trusting that what is meant to emerge will emerge and I'm just going with the flow. So yeah, I've done a lot of labor. So exciting. Well, thank you so, so much for this conversation. It has been very insightful and wonderful to talk to you. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you.